For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Recorded live.
academies, the maritime. What's that? No, no that was just the muting. Go ahead. We're having someone on talk shoes messing with Steve, but just ignore it. <laughs> okay. So I, uh, you know, uh, attended the U.S. Maritime Academy, where you could not get married. Uh, I was engaged uh, with Judy uh, to Judy uh, before I uh, went up to the uh, North Pole for a year of Air Force duty on the distant early warning system up there. Oh wow! Um, and uh, but but uh, came back and uh, but went into the academy where you could not get married. <laughs> you know, well some of the guys did try to keep it sacred. But <clears throat> so after five days after graduation, Judy and I were married. Oh and wow! So yeah, it's it's been Judy since uh, I don't know 1953. God bless her. So she, you're right. She. Uh, you know, both of us have been volunteers in this new, my new career. I had a fairly good lucrative career for the first 25 years before I started doing this. Um, and, uh, but she's been right there uh, by my side, taking care of all of the office things, the mail and and all the uh, interaction with our accounting, accountants and doing all that work. Now, Bob, you worked in, as a civil engineer in Wall Street downtown Manhattan, right? You were working with the big investment banks, correct? Doing doing major public yeah, works projects. On graduation from the academy, I wanted to uh, sail a little bit on my marine engineering license. Sure. I took a couple of trips. Uh, I remember one of them was on a twin-screw banana boat uh, with United Fruit heading down through the canal down the uh, west side of um, South America, picking up bananas in places like Guayaquil, Ecuador, um, bringing them back. And uh, and then I uh, went to work, actually, I went to work initially for Westinghouse Marine okay. Engineering Division out in um, uh, Pittsburgh. But they moved that group to uh, Sunnyvale, California, and I didn't want to go there. So I moved over to General Electric in Schenectady. Oh, yeah. Yep. And as an engineer at their gas turbine department, the heavy-duty gas turbines, not the lightweight that power our aircraft. Sure. But the heavy-duty gas turbines that power uh, generators and and pumps on gas pipelines and things like that. Um, and uh, uh, got a promotion out to Evendale, in Ohio, uh, where GE does make the lightweight gas turbines, and we were applying them to Navy ships. You need the lightweight version for the for the fast uh, Navy ships. But um, no sooner did I get out there when the vice president in charge of that operation, the aircraft engine group, announced a slowdown and encouraged people really not to, you know, commit to any new expenditures. But I didn't want to do that. So I took a leave of absence and finished up my MBA at Xavier. I had started okay. I had started my MBA um, in New York with General Electric. But I finished it up out there and was looking around uh, on what I wanted to do next. And I settled, uh, went to work in GE's Corporate Research and Development Center, which is a great, great assignment. 600 of 
you know, really top-notch engineers and scientists working on basic research and applied research. And um, But I was the first MBA. It was an MBA in, in business and finance that I picked up at Xavier. And I was the first uh, MBA to be hired uh, at the mechanical engineering lab um, in Schenectady. Wow. And my uh, job, you know, if you leave these guys alone at the bench working on apply, uh, basic or applied research, they're just happy. But especially the guys on basic research who are advancing the envelope and things like in those days like holography and MRIs and things like that, um, if you just leave them alone, they're happy <laughs> as luck. But it, the question is, is, is what they're doing going to help the company in any way, try to give them some my job was to try and give them some business direction. Mm-hmm. And um, but I no sooner got out there when uh, I started, you know, the cities were burning. Uh, the campuses were really, uh, you know, unrest. It was the anti-Vietnam War era, and there was a lot, a lot of commotion in the country, a lot. And um, in look, thinking about that, I... Uh, I just assumed, you know, I looked around at how the mechanical engineering lab and the rest of the R&D center was getting their money. You know, who who was supporting, how were they supporting all of these people? And uh, half their money was coming from other GE departments. For instance, the Nella Park, uh, GE's unit out in uh, Cleveland, makes light bulbs, <laughs> you know, and uh, they may want the uh, R&D center to figure out how to make their filaments last longer, things like that, you know, that mm-hmm. would support their their uh, their different departments. But the other half of the money was coming from the federal government in both uh, defense and space. And I, I kind of figured that um, uh, things had to change, that... The, a lot of these uh, problems that the country was experiencing back then, um, I didn't think we could afford to just leave it to government to solve those problems. Corporate America was going to have to make a contribution, I figured, but neither could they, you know, but they couldn't afford to relax on the profit motive. They were going to have to find a way to to um, solve these problems, but at a profit help solve the problems, but at a profit. So I looked around thinking, you know, just free thinking, you know. Um, so I looked, you know, what about ed- uh, education or criminal justice? And and then there was the um, the environment. And uh, I had started on a PhD program at the State University uh, of Albany, uh, the Graduate Center there, um, figuring if if I wrote a paper uh, called Social Benefit Corporations, and um, I figured if if uh, if we were going to get get into that kind of work, that the MBAs like myself were going to have to talk to the MPAs, the Masters of uh, of Public Administration, mm-hmm. and uh, there's two different languages there, of course, and um, so I embarked on this PhD program for a PhD in public administration. But then it was a great time. I mean, really a great time in my life. All the work I was doing, uh, 
I was getting credit for on my PhD program, but I was also uh, it was all I was applying it back at the uh, at GE's complex in Schenectady. Wow! And uh, it was just a great time, just a great time. And but I had um, in looking around, I I sort of settled. Uh, what caught my attention was solid waste of all things. Um, you know, I looked at it and I. You know, I figured out, well, everything we throw away is either organic or inorganic. And, uh, you know, if it's organic, it's paper, it's cardboard, it's wood, it's food, it's it's uh, plastic, it's all of those things. And if it's inorganic, it's metals and glass and stuff like that. And then it all comes from uh, four places. You know, uh, the mines, the forests, the farms, and the waters. But the problem, as I saw it, was that uh, when we make these products, whatever it is, your wristwatch, your eyeglasses, your cars, or whatever, we there's a design phase where um, people figure out uh, what material they're going to use and and uh, and they design it for to make it uh, user friendly. So there there's a design phase and a and a use phase, but there wasn't any reuse phase. People weren't designing things for reuse. Either, you know, make it easy to take it apart and get these. You know. So um, the more I got into this, I sensed I sent some of the guys, the engineers down at. Yard descended down to New York City. I said, follow those garbage trucks around and, said, and do a little survey and do a little report on what you what you observed down there. And uh, looked around, got some statistics, and that's a huge amount of stuff that you know we throw away. And and uh, and then throwing them away. Back then, we were dumping them in the ocean. New York City would put it in a bar, would put their stuff on barges, and then just take the barges out to the ocean. And dump, dump them in the ocean. Dump them in the ocean. The ocean. Right. Oh my God. And uh, or you know they were burning it in in uh, big incinerators that didn't have any environmental you know controls on them, belching a lot of smoke, or they were burying it. You know, um, and uh, you know we were filling up holes in the ground and knocking down mountains to fill up to put the dirt on that. You know, uh, so. Um, anyway, I, the more I, you know, we, we actually, I said to the guys at the R&D center, I said, okay, look, uh, I think we need a, a gadget, you know, like no bigger than a, a washing machine in, in a, in someone's kitchen and no more costly so that as the, uh, you know, I'm not a sexist, but what I said was, so as the housewife empties out the uh, can of dog food and, you know, instead of throwing it in this garbage can that everything gets all mixed up in, mm-hmm. that there's something that's going to detect what it is and it's going to put it into a compartment, either crush right. it or shred it or something. Well, sure enough, they built, you know, they built the, um, they built such a device. And using the magnetometers, you know, that are used at airport uh, screening uh, mm-hmm. today. But um, uh, so, you know, uh, 
a lot of the products, you know, it worked. You know, the milk container, you know, went into the proper compartment, crushed or shredded or whatever. But but then there was a the problem, you know, with that light bulb. <laughs> you know, it, it's got an aluminum base and whatnot. So so uh, I sent, the, you know, we told the guys out in Ella Park we wanted to see them. So, oh, gosh, the guys from the R&D Center are coming out, hot dog, you know, they probably got some great idea. So we get out there, and when they found out we were t- telling them they had to redesign the light bulb, they told us to go home. So, go to hell. Uh, <laughs> they said, get the hell out of here, you know. That's yeah. Work. <laughs> they weren't about to redesign the light bulb. Anyway, just one of those stories. Um, so I eventually came up with this concept called the waste utility. Uh, privately owned, privately operated, needing to comply with um, a new industry, needing to comply with with all of the industrial, you know, and environmental rules and regulations, um, and uh, Rockefeller was the governor of New York at the time, and uh, his first uh, environmental commissioner was a guy named Henry Diamond. And they they had heard about this concept, uh-huh. and, and they wanted to uh, come over and, and get a presentation from me and on the whole concept. And uh, so the guys at, our, at, at GE's R&D Center said, well, wait a minute, you know, if GE speaks, it's going to get out, and it's going to get all over the world, you know, whatever. So we we need to, you know, we need to be careful what we say, and and – they wanted uh this is all a concept in my head right and um uh, so they wanted a, a, a an artist to uh portray this concept uh which they did it was it was a big factory you know and a funnel on the top and garbage going in and coming out it was a train taking this stuff away and you know all that stuff so they came over and uh, we gave them this presentation, but there are two reporters there uh, from an Albany and a Schenectady newspaper. And, of course, it hit the papers the next day. And, well, the Los Angeles Times uh, sent somebody. And I had a four-hour interview, and they made a major story. And it was big news. Wow. Uh, gee, what year I, was this? What, Bob, what year generally? Are, any idea of the year? Uh, it was um, – Let's see, I went to Vietnam in 66, uh, came back and and went to, uh, uh, yeah, so it was, it was uh, 69, 69 mm-hmm. or 70, something like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 69 or 70. And uh, so I had this, uh, you know, the, the, the waste utility idea would re- in my head, I figured, you know, we're going to initially, in you know, some plant, we're going to separate things that burn from things that don't burn. We'll get the energy out of the things that burn. And uh, the guys patented a, what's called a rotating eardrum. Uh, you, you shred everything and you feed it in and and you have blowers and, and the lightweight stuff go, carries further than the heavyweight stuff, of course. So the metals and glass and all of that fall, but the heavy, lighter weight stuff carries out, and mm-hmm. you get a, and you get an initial separation, and then um, then you you take the uh, the organics, the lighter weight stuff, and you you 
you know, you get some energy out of that, either gasification or or something or just burning. And uh, and then the heavier stuff, uh, because it's so much smaller uh, percentage-wise uh, of the total by volume, um, uh, that that would uh, hook up with similar streams of metal and glass from other primary separation plants, and there you would work on that. I went down to the Bureau of Mines. I spent a lot of time down at College Park at the Bureau of Mines looking over all this mining machinery because that's basically what we were doing was mining trash. And um, all the technology was there uh, to, to, to put uh, all of the, you know, glass, steel, tin, uh, aluminum, all that stuff uh, in a form and a location where you could use it again. Uh, you know, take the steel and and uh, put it into lightweight structural materials like rebar and like and, and glass could come out it looking like sand. You didn't have to color sort it because it could be it can be uh, softened and and blown into fiberglass uh, for home insulation. Uh, just oh yeah, it, just wrap it up with a piece of paper. You don't care what color it is. Yeah. So anyway, I was having a great time with all of that, and um, I got a call from uh, remember Don, um, uh, Dan Lufkin. You may know because you're in Donaldson the, Lufkin and Jemret. That's yep. Donaldson Lufkin and Jemret. Well, Dan Lufkin, he uh, was one of the founders of Earth Day, and uh, he called me at the R&D Center and uh, asked if I would. Uh, he said he and Governor Meskel, a Republican governor wanted to um, talk to me. Would I go out and talk to them? And so I was doing a little research on on this guy Lufkin. And uh, at about that time, there was an article in Forbes magazine uh, that basically told how Lufkin and two of his buddies from uh, Harvard got together, scraped together, you know, half a million dollars and started DLJ. Mm-hmm. And, they made very, and they made very few mistakes. Um, and that he, Lufkin, I, I think at this time he was maybe 40, 41 years old, was worth, um, without, you know, it's 1970, was worth, um, I don't know, like $140 million or something like that. Wow. So they wanted to talk to me, and I said, okay, well, you know, I, did, I had no idea what, the, what they wanted to talk to me about. And um, so I went to Hartford, and uh, Dan Lufkin um uh, he, he, at this time, was, was um, he had a social conscience, uh, and he uh, was instrumental, as I say, in Earth Day, and then that led to EPA, and then that led to these state environmental agencies. Well, Connecticut's Department of Environmental Protection was, was started, and Dan was the first commissioner. Uh, he was a very charismatic guy. I mean, his desk, uh, he insisted, you know, all of the people working for him mm-hmm. uh, would be at one big room, and he'd be out there in his desk along with them, you know, yeah. no, no separate office or anything. Very charismatic guy. So I get out there, and um, they said, uh, how would you like to uh, come over here to Hartford and start up a new agency, and all of these people, and there were a lot of them, 
that were in the uh, Connecticut Health Department that spent their time uh, controlling the rat population at the landfills and, uh, you know, worrying, uh, applying their time to the, in the health department, uh, uh, applying their time to the burning and burying, you know, minimize the adverse impacts of burning and burying. And they would all, you know, come over to work for you and, and you could uh, try to get the country's first statewide uh, plan for mass recovery and reuse of, of solid waste. Uh-huh. And um, and I said, uh, okay, <laughs> I'll do that. Um, because at, back at GE, uh, even though, you know, I was having a great time, but I was watching this long gray line as 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 this concept grew in, in uh, popularity and, and uh, GE, uh, you know, they were, they were, they, they were uh, trying to uh, apply a lot of their engineering talent. Uh, I remember in Philadelphia, they had a big unit and they were trying to find their niche in, in this, you know, in this new, environment within which uh, the company was operating. And uh, so I was watching this long gray line forming in front of me because I was young and, you know, I was new. And um, and you had these old timers there that had been around a while. And um, so I said to this Republican governor in in Lufkin, it was really Lufkin, uh, yeah, I'll do that. So I went to Connecticut and... uh, wrote the law that is still there today. It's called the Connecticut Resource Recovery Authority. And uh, had GE as a contractor. Um, and, uh, and we uh, I put together a uh, request for proposals uh, for the first plant uh, in the country uh, that would uh, be designed to separate basically organics from inorganics. Um, and uh, we put out an RFP for somebody to, uh, in, in the Re- uh, Resource Recovery Act, uh, there were some certain business principles that I insisted on and wrote into the law. One of those that I really liked was, the guy that packs the parachute is going to jump with it. Um, so whoever builds these plants, they're going to be private. Uh, the role of Connecticut was to issue tax-exempt, you know, bonds to help facilitate the financing. But whoever uh, built these plants would be responsible for them. Bonds, you know, paying off the bonds and the rest of that. So, uh, so I wrote this request for proposal, and uh, uh, people were bidding it. I remember Litton Industries. Uh, Put in a bid, and uh, and uh, uh, the problem I had with their bid was Bechtel, one of the nation's big en- uh, research firms, research and engineering firms, uh, was playing the lead, not 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 the uh, not Litton Industries. That you know, I wanted the guys that were going to actually be in the business taking the lead. People like Bechtel could help them figure it out, figure out how to do it. But anyway, so I remember we called Roy Ash, who 
had been uh, 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 head of uh, uh, Office of Management and Budget, but he was now head of Litton Industries. And um, told him what the problem was, but he said he was building, he had a big contract to build a bunch of Navy destroyers down in Pascagoula, and that he was, you know, really didn't have time to think about anything else, taking the sure. lead and like that. So, it, uh, but this is interesting, given your background, Fred, in in uh, the markets and so forth. There was a company, this is sort of a fascinating little story here. There was a company that uh, put in a bid called Com- Combustion Equipment Associates. They were on the, I think, penny stock market. And, um, and, and, uh, they put in a bid, and they showed us, you know, the, the whole idea of separating the organics was to, to get the things that basically had, uh, that you could recover the energy, um, paper, wood, cardboard, you know, food, other things like that, plastic. And um, and uh, and so they uh, they showed us their, their uh, product, their fuel. It was... It looked like talcum powder. So I said to them, I said, how the heck do you get all of the organics, the things that burn in our in our waste stream, mm-hmm. uh, look like, you know, to get the particle size that, that you're showing me here, this talcum mm-hmm. powder. And they wouldn't tell me. They said it's a it's a it's a corporate secret. So I said to them, Well, you understand the guy that packs this parachute's gonna jump with it. Oh yeah, we understand, they said. So I said, well, show me your, you know, your balance sheet. And they didn't have the wherewithal to, you know, to stand behind a $50 million plant. Mm-hmm. So they went out and teamed up with uh, Arm & Hammer from Occidental Petroleum out in California. Oh, and wow. sure enough, sure enough, they, they had the, you know, they had the sure. asset. So they got the job. But, um, and after the job was awarded, they came to me. You know, you go through your life. And there are certain decisions that you make that you regret later on. And this mm-hmm. is one of those decisions that I regret having made. So they came to me and they said, uh, hey, Bob, we've got this fuel, but rather than as, as your request for proposal requires, rather than build a, an electrical generating plant there in Bridgeport at the site of this plant we're building, we would rather uh, take this fuel, this talcum powder size, particle size, and take it over there to that uh, Connecticut Power and Light plant that's burning fuel oil, and we'll entrain it. We'll entrain it into the oil and um, rather than build a new plant. And I said, no, uh, I'm a graduate of Kings Point. I understand mm-hmm. boilers and fuels. And uh, you need to uh, design your uh, power plant, uh, your boiler, you know, fr- from uh, operating controls right on up through pollution controls for this fuel. Yeah. You can't put it into a, a device that was designed for another type of fuel. Sorry, no. Yeah. Well, they, so they said, do you mind? This was, they had uh, GE as, uh, as uh, oh, a consultant, 
and um, and they said, do you mind if we talk to Dan Lufkin, you know, and the governor? And this is the decision I made that I shouldn't have made. I said, sure, go ahead. You know, well, what do you, who do you think Dan Lufkin and the governor are going to listen to, GE or me? And so they listened to, you know, to uh, uh, to GE. And and uh, with that decision, I left. I resigned, and and after three years, Connecticut. And um, and so the you know the what happened was the the uh, the way they made this fuel was they shredded all of the stuff in the garbage and they separated the uh, the stuff that burns from the things that don't burn. But but then they sprayed it on a conveyor belt. They sprayed it with uh, sulfuric acid, and oh then and then the conveyor belt took it to a large rotating uh, ball mill, hot balls, and you just feed this stuff in. And because it's been sprayed with sulfuric acid, it fractures, and and uh, and fractures into this talcum-sized powder size, you know. So, but when they uh, got the plant built, and they and they brought the fuel over to the oil-burning power plant, come to find out it, you know, it, it had all the sulfur in it, and they could never get a permit to operate, to open that plant. The, you know, so the whole thing, you know, oxidized petroleum, they, they had to pay off the bonds and, and take the plant down, you know, uh, remove the plant. <coughs> so, uh, but I left Connecticut and uh, came back to New York, set up a management uh, consulting company, <clears throat> And uh, the Democrat governor, well, I got a contract with New York State to develop a statewide plan, and I did. And uh, there were two big volumes. One was on technology. The other was on uh, administrative stuff. But it was, you know, <coughs> a plan for New York State, all of waste utilities. And um, uh, the guys in the <laughs> – what was that? Sorry. I thought it was muted. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. So uh, I mean, uh, I don't want to bore anybody with all of this. No, just no, 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 no. Keep going, Bob. This is important stuff. He's muted now. <laughs> so, so the so the, um, the the Democrat governor here was a guy named Hugh Carey, and um, they had a, by now a Department of Environmental Conservation, and they had heard about the work we were doing and. So they contracted with my management consulting group um, to develop a statewide plan for New York, which we did. And uh, between the time, uh, but it, it, it turns out the bureaucrats at the Department of Environmental Conservation were not happy. You know, these were the people who were running the whole, you know, getting burning and burying garbage and mm-hmm. had a close relationship with, companies like Browning Ferris and Waste Management and people who, you know, burn and bury. And, and uh, you know, discontent breeds change, but change also breeds discontent. So they weren't really happy that, it, you know, we had the contract and we're given space at uh, the big New York State Department of Environmental Conservation uh, to uh, do the work that we needed to get done. And the day came when I had to deliver 50 copies of this uh, report. It's a true story. Maybe I'll put it in my book. Um, and because um, there's a lesson here, you know. So uh, the department was between commissioners. Uh, 
Ogden Reed, who was a great guy that contracted with us, he's out, and a guy named Peter Burley is on his way in. And uh, so I, so I get down there, and the head of the Solid Waste Bureau, uh, a guy named Bill Bentley, he wants to see me, calls me, you know, go into his office, and he says, uh, Mr. Schultz, you know, that report, that plan is not going to see the light of day. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because I'm going to burn every copy. And he did. Um, but there was a uh, there was a, uh, a deputy uh, commissioner there who was on his way out as well, and he spoke to a guy named John Dyson, who was the commerce commissioner for New York State. John Dyson is the son of oh, a family that owned a lot of uh, newspapers, uh, weekly newspapers up and down the Hudson, and and um, very prominent guy and. But he was commerce commissioner, and um, so this deputy commissioner from the environmental group contacted Dyson and said, "John, you ought to talk to these guys. They got they got a great idea there, but the the environmental guys, you know, the the solid waste guys are are uh, not happy." And um, so I got a call from Dyson, and Dyson was. He had been an intelligence officer in Vietnam, so I figured, well, he's going to be able to absorb, you know, what we're saying here. So I prepared a bunch of flip charts, and um, and my partner and I went over there. And uh, when I finished, John Dyson said, "Hey, I like that." And I said, "Well, you may like it, but the guys over in the environmental, you know, uh, department, for whatever reason, um, are reluctant." and um, not happy. And so he said, well, what do we do? And I said, well, why don't you set up a, a governor's task force on resource recovery and you get on it and let the environmental guy get on it, the commissioner, and a couple of other commissioners and have at it. And uh, so he asked me to prepare the paperwork for the governor to set this thing up, which I did. And, um, and uh, so a couple of months later, I got a call from Dyson saying, would you mind getting a gubernatorial appointment to come into, political appointment to come into the administration? We'll set up a policy office for you, and you'll represent it. Yeah, and, you know, you can help us get some laws on the books in this new field. And um, so I agreed to do that and uh, ran that policy office for a year, got some laws on the books in New York. Wow. Uh, so it was the policy, as of you know, with those laws, it, it became the policy of the state to maximize recovery and reuse and minimize burning and burying. That was the policy. Um, and uh, after that, um, I got a call from uh, the the EPA uh, administrator, a guy named Doug Costell, asking if I would. Uh, uh, Take a uh, would I, would, would I uh, sign a, a one-year contract to develop a uh, a plan for uh, recovering most of what people were throwing away in New York City? You know, as I said, most of it was being put on barges and being dumped in the ocean. Sure. Yeah. And um, so I agreed to do that and uh, commuted uh, uh, commuted to the uh, federal building in, in Manhattan every weekend and uh, developed a, a plan, uh, 
specific plan uh, for New York City. But again, uh, we were taking on, uh, it, there's a lot of money uh, in, uh, in waste. And, mm-hmm. and uh, powerful, a lot of money gets, gets uh, you know, finds its way into the hands of uh, politicians. And like, and um, so, uh, you know, there was there was a lot of resistance there, and uh, too much for, you know, the, uh, the the administration, the city administration, Koch and the rest of them to overcome. Um, and then I got a call from Prudential Beach Securities asking uh, if I would, um, because they saw something was going to happen on the solid waste front. Mm -hmm. Would I uh, become an investment banker with um, Prudential Beige to um, try to get uh, Prudential well positioned in this uh, upcoming new field? and, and I said, look, I've got a, a team of people. Uh, I don't want to leave them. Uh, and so we negotiated a 50-50 joint venture. So it was Prudential Beach Resource Recovery Associates was its name. Uh-huh. Wow. And uh, the idea was to get them as managing underwriter, you know, get, get, a, get them into position advising governments uh, across the country, uh, to uh, you know, looking forward to you know being the bond issuer. So on a lot of these things, well, our competition was uh, Smith Barney, and uh, <clears throat> Smith Barney, they their their position was, hey, let's just go with these mass burning incinerators. You know, they they uh, have come a long way since they were just belching smoke. I mean, environmental controls have been developed, and uh, in the recovery effort in Japan and and uh, and Europe after World War II, a lot of these uh, mass burning incinerators were developed, burning trash, and making steam uh, in hot water for distribution in cities and so forth. And so, the rating agencies. Uh, uh, were looking at what we were offering, you know, to do, and and what Smith Barney was offering, and they kept telling me, well, you gotta, you know, you, you, there's there seems to be a whole lot more risk in, in what you're suggesting, Bob, and and uh, so I went out to AIG and and developed a, a new line of insurance for them, technological technology insurance. So, you know, we kept having to add another layer, another layer, because uh, they were, you know, they were concerned that, uh, that things were not going to, it, it wasn't tried and true like uh, like what Smith Barney was offering. So, uh, um, eventually, uh, you know, it looked like Smith Barney uh, uh, was on their way to, uh, building a lot and, and funding a lot of mass burning incinerators they're not you know it's just stupid um 40 of of what goes in the front door of those incinerators by weight comes out 
gets and gets trucked somewhere and gets dumped. You know. Wow. And yeah. When New York City, they they had some of these built, and the waste gets trucked to Pennsylvania. These these mines, you know, that they coal mines and these surface mines. So anyway, that uh, didn't go very far. So. Um, I don't know where I am. I, oh, I, yeah, I, and so while I'm doing that, and and uh, my career is really good. I mean, I'm raising four kids. I bought my home up here, my property, eventually about 130 acres, and uh, a good part of that, a, you know, a mountainside, um, and raising four kids, and and uh, raising thoroughbred horses, and racing them, mm-hmm. and sheep, wow. and and uh, three dozen sheep, and Two barns and life was good. <laughs> life was very good. Um, and uh, so right now we're in the mid seventies now, Bob. Is that where we're at after the post Vietnam War? Yeah, let's see. This was. Uh, let me think about that. Um, uh, oh yeah. So it's uh, it's now nineteen eighty four. We had a we had oh, a big. Wow. We, we had a big contract. Okay, we had a big contract in California, and every uh, weekend I was flying back and forth to um, Los mm-hmm. Angeles, mm-hmm. Uh, doing some work uh, out there. Um, and uh, but 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 in 1979, uh, something happened that that basically changed my life and I wouldn't be here talking to you today but for this experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, here I was doing this work. My, I had an office. I had the, all these people working for me. and and um, Where was that office, Bob? Was it down in Manhattan or was it uh, elsewhere? No, I had an office at 41 State Street in Albany. Oh, wow. And, uh, That's that, an easy I, commute. Yeah, it was only about an hour each way. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so... Uh, Life was good. Oh, there was a uh, yeah. There, I forgot. I forgot exactly what time. So, so in the um, somewhere in there, um, I was contacted by a firm that was trading on on um, Wall Street, and they had developed gas a gasification process for solid waste. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't burn it. You would you would gasify it, and. Uh, I agreed uh, to become a, the vice president of project development for them, and uh, <laughs> so I was down. Uh, this is interesting. It just fixes the time. I'm down in, um, I guess it was Georgia, or yeah, I guess it was Georgia. That's South Carolina. The, the Southern uh, in the, the, the group. You must know them, Fred. There's a, an organization that is made up of a number of utilities, electric utilities down in the southeast portion of the United States. The Tennessee Valley Authority. No, not the TVA, no. No, This is is the southern industries, I think. I forget what they're called. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, so so I'm down there, you know, talking to them about a a joint venture between them and this company called, um, oh, what were they? I can't remember the name. The, the gasification process. I, I was fascinated with the gasification process. They had a, a pilot plant, 
everything was working real technology was working really well and um and I thought this was you know in terms of the organic portion of the waste, this was the way to go rather than you know burning it and um so I was down uh working out a a deal for a, a joint venture with this major <clears throat> southern a holding company <clears throat> for these private utilities down there and it was the day that the um that the uh the, the rocket exploded with that teacher you know on it that um there was a female teacher on there that was up there for the ride and it exploded of course everybody died. Sally Ride Sally Ride the teacher and the yes, space shuttle right. 1986 or 85 yeah so correct yeah, that was the day. And okay, so when yeah. I got back, when I got back, I learned that um, there was someone in the company that tipped me off that uh, the president of the company had um, had released news to the media that they had a contract, signed a contract with some outfit in uh, or some municipality or county or the state of Vermont, which spiked the value of the stock. And uh, so I went to the president, Bob uh, something or other, and I, and I said, well, wait a minute. What, what's this? I'm the vice president of project development, and, and you did this in my absence? Uh, and and, it, and you, it's basically fabricated. You you did it to, to spike the value of the stock that you owned, and and that's it. I I had a three year contract with them, and I yeah I just left. I said to you, I'm not, I don't want any part of this. That's Absolutely, little, wow. That's another little chapter in in the background there. Um, but so here I was in the um, in the eighties, mid eighties now, I guess, and. Um, but but something else was happening that eventually led to what I do now. Um, I'm on the uh, I settled on the east side of Lake George. Lake George is 32 miles long. Jefferson visited it, you know, and called it the Queen of America's Lakes. It's just stunning in its beauty. It's it sits in uh, mountains, heavily wooded mountains, and you know the Adirondacks. It's in the foothills of the Adirondacks. And so um, I noticed that um, the town and the county here were starting to tell the people that this lake, in their words, was going to turn pea soup green in six to ten years. Those are their words, pea soup green in six to ten years. And, of course, this was a, a tourist area, and they said if, if as that happens, um, the value – you know, if your tourism is going to dry up, the value of your homes is going to go south. And they frightened the people. I don't know how else to say it. They frightened the people. and and But they said they have a solution to the problem. And the solution was to run a main sewer line down both sides of the lake, hook it together at the bottom of the lake, take all the wastewater out of the Lake George watershed, over the ridge to the Hudson River watershed where they would build a treatment plant and dump the effluent into the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. And um, and so they brought the people to the poles 
for uh, to vote on this on this plan, and based entirely on what the government was telling the people, they approved it something like three or four to one. And uh, so I'm you know running back and forth <laughs> doing my work, running all over the country. My office is in Albany, and I'm not paying a whole lot of attention to this. Um, but one day Judy uh, shows me an article in the newspaper that says right around the bend here, like a quarter of a mile away, in the uh, Queensbury uh, firehouse, the new government official in charge of all of this, this Warren County sewer project, was going to be giving a talk. So I said, well, I've got a couple of questions for him. And uh, so I went to the meeting, and after he finished, I raised my hand. Here's a government official. I'm raising my hand to ask, to ask him a question. And he says, no questions. See me later. I think he knew that I, you know, had been a full-time advisor to the EPA administrator and stuff like that. Um, but that. But I instinctively felt there was something wrong with that. And so I said to Judy, we're leaving right now. And she said, this is a covered dish luncheon meeting. She said, not without my covered dish. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we got went home. I wanted to get on the phone to talk to people who had been around the lake. I'd only been around 10 years, but who had been around the lake longer than I had been. So we immediately went home, and I got on the phone. I started calling a few people, asking if there was any signs of algae on the shore, were there any restrictions on drinking the water out of this lake, and uh, any restrictions on fishing, and, you know, no, no, no. This is a a lake that uh, is uh, stream-fed, underground stream-fed, big time, and the water flows actually north, and uh, and it, there's a dam up there that's controlled, and so the flow is controlled, and it dumps into Lake Champlain. So I said, well, what's going on here? You know, what's the problem here? And uh, so I decided to look into this, and I discovered that um, there'd always been a bill in the state legislature to authorize commercial casino gambling, uh, gambling casinos, and that the bill never got out, was never got out of committee. But the people who owned the tourist attractions, the main tourist attractions at the head of Lake George, big time tourist area, Fred, um, that they uh, knew someday, uh, and, and, and it's already happened. It happened in 2013 uh, that uh, people have approved a constitutional amendment here to a state constitution allowing commercial casinos. But in any event, back then, they knew it would happen someday and that they had to get ready for this. For the, so uh, there was, the only way to, that you could handle the wastewater from, you know, all those people on top of the tourists, you know, that uh, was to pipe the water out of here, out of the watershed. And um, they probably said to themselves, well, that's going to be expensive. How will we pay for it? Well, we'll get everybody to hook in, you know, and shut down what they have now and, and hook in. And they probably said to themselves, well, why would they do that if that what they now have works, you know, these on-site wastewater systems, you mm-hmm. know, uh, septic tanks, tile fields, and all of that. 
Sure. And uh, they probably said to themselves, well, we want, well they don't know it works. <laughs> it's under the ground. We'll tell them it's not working. It's leaking. Everybody's septic system is leaking into the lake. And, um, and so that's what they were doing. So uh, there was a new law on the books, one that uh, I happen to think a lot of, and it's called the, um, all states have them now, I'm sure, State Environmental Quality Review Act. You know, gone in this state as of 1977 with the passage of that act, um, gone were the days that you could build a factory next to a river and connect the factory to the river and pipe your waste into the river. Remember the... I think it was the Cayuga River in Cleveland uh, caught on fire, right? Yeah, yep. Way back, way back right? Some of the are old enough to remember that. And uh, so gone are the days. And if you're going to do big projects like this, you have to, according to the law, you have to look at all the alternatives. And you have to quantify the impacts of each alternative, compare the totality of those impacts, and then choose the alternative that's going to have the least adverse impact on the environment, the economy taken into consideration. You know? and, and here, they weren't going to do that review. They just were saying, well, you know, there's no doubt about it. We're going to save the lake. That's an environmental you know, project and blah, blah, blah. And so they what they call neg-decked the project. They, didn't have, they were saying they didn't have to do that, that review. So... Um, but I knew that there were uh, to be pretty significant adverse impacts, uh, you know, from that project. I can tick off a couple of them here. The going up one side of the lake, the side I'm on, it's it's a route called a state route called 9L, and on the other side it's 9N. And uh, as you go along that road, on on one side is is the lake, and the homes, you know, down along the lake. On the other side, it's hillside, and there's no soil on the hillsides, so it's not developed. There's no on-site soils for on-site septic systems, on-site wastewater disposal systems. But if you run a, a pipe down each of those two highways, then all people had to do um, to build on, uh, to develop those hillsides would be to gravitate their wastewater down to that pipe. And there's a couple of, you know, those roads, they run along rock ledge. You'd have to blast, I mean, just blast a trench down down both the sides of the lake and um, to, for the for the main trunk line. And, and then all of the homes down on the lake would have to put in grinders and pump their stuff up. And, and from just the town of Bolton, halfway up the west side, down to um, the Hudson, You'd have to. It was a call for 39 pumping stations. Every time the wastewater gravitated to a low point, you'd have to pump it up to the next high point, and then when it got to another low point, you'd have to pump it up again. 39 pumping stations with heavy demand for electricity, you know, that you don't have now. But the big problem, uh, the big environmental problem, was um, the the fact that there had been a, a recent study by the Freshwater Institute located on Lake George and. They uh, had uh, estimated the source and the amount of of all pollutants to the lake, and uh, on-site wastewater was zero. Uh, The village of Lake George was sewered, but every now and then, you know, the pumping station failed or a pipe failed, and you had this overflow into the lake. Uh, But the the uh, main source of pollution of Lake George is is what they call 
wet fall and dry fall, just stuff coming out of the air. Uh, when it's not raining, that's dry fall or snowing, and when mm-hmm. it is snowing, it's called wet fall. And so yeah. if you were to uh, develop the hillsides, putting in uh, impervious materials like driveways and rooftops and all of that, then you would be giving this this uh, dry fall and wet fall a straight shot to the lake. And then, of course, um, another environmental factor, you would be completely changing the character of the area. So these are all things that the law required you know, be considered. And so, wow, I said, you know, geez, um, they're going to they're going to violate. I didn't know there was a state constitution at the, at the time, uh, but I knew there was a law and and a state environmental quality review act that they were going to violate. And uh, so now I had 30 questions and I, you know, I didn't know where the town board met or the county. I'd been there a while, but I didn't know where these I never paid any attention. But I, I was so naive in those days that I thought, okay, these are our representatives. I mean, you know, they're going to listen. And, you know, so at the public comment period of the, of the meetings, I took the microphone. I stuck, now I had 30 questions. And, and it was obvious right off the bat these people were not happy I was there. And they were not about to ask, answer any questions. But I was determined. And um, I wanted these questions answered. Um, so I did something I had never done before, never contemplated. God, it was so foreign. I decided I would sue the government, sue the town and the county. And, of course, I didn't know anything about you know doing that uh, in those days. So I figured I would hire an attorney. And uh, a good decision I made was, you know, to hire an attorney outside the area. <laughs> Go down to Albany and look for an attorney, not hire one up here that has to, you know, bring all of his clients through the through the judge, the same judge. So <clears throat> there's a group called the uh, uh, the uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the. I'm sorry having a mental lapse here. Um, so I asked, I called this uh, public interest group, public interest research group, uh, New York public interest research group, that was it, um, if this was something that would interest them. And they said no, but there was a guy that that uh, just left them and was out practicing on his own. He might be interested. So his name was Lou Oliver, and I called Lou Oliver, and uh, made an appointment for him to come see me at my office down at 41 State Street. And um, (laughs) this guy shows up, and he's got, like, farmer overalls on, you know, with straps over the shoulders, and and he's got sneakers on, and he's got a flannel (laughs) shirt, and a flannel shirt. He has a woman with him, and the woman is a few years older than him, long red, straight hair, she has similar uh, uh, overalls on, but combat boots. And uh, <laughs> this is a riot. So I got my partner, John Flandre, a wonderful guy, you know. So we interview this guy. And after he leaves, I say to John, what do you think, John? He says, well, he's a little eccentric. And I said, yeah, but I had absolutely no problem with the way he spoke and, you know, the way he thought and so forth. So... Uh, we decided to have a follow-up meeting in a restaurant across the street. And so uh, 
we arrange for him to meet us there, he shows up in the same outfit, but this time he's got a lunchbox, a kid's lunchbox that he sets on the table in this restaurant, and then he opens it up, and it's got a sandwich and an apple and stuff in there, you know. <laughs> oh, my God, I was so embarrassed. But still, you know, the, uh, uh, I learned later, you know, well, he was from Harvard. They were both graduates of the Albany Law School. She was first in her class. That was his wife that he, you know, he didn't tell me it was his mm-hmm. wife. Yeah. And, and so I ended up, you know, I just liked the way he thought, you know. And so he did the legal work, and I did the technical work, and um, we challenged this project. And uh, I started learning something about the judiciary. Uh, the case went to, here in New York, we have, uh, if you're going to sue the government, there's three levels that you can go through. The first, the lower level, believe it or not, is called the New York State Supreme Court, in and for the county of here, Warren County, and then, you know, there's a Supreme Court in every county. Um, and because of our pop, low population, there was one judge here. You, you're down to Albany or especially New York City, you've got a whole lot more Supreme Court justices handling all the caseload. And um, so he probably, this judge probably dismissed the case. So we took it to the mid-level court called the uh, appellate division of the state Supreme Court in Albany. And uh, they gave a decision which said, uh, okay, we agree with Mr. Schultz. Um, that project cannot go any further until you do the environmental review. Well, I thought about that. I knew the intent of the law was that before the people were brought to the polls to vote on what the government was telling them, you know, had to happen to save the lake, that they were entitled to the results of that review that was required by law. And and all of the uh, town and county supervisors that had voted to approve and finance this project, they too were supposed to have the results of that review before they voted. So the intent of the law, uh, you know, uh, was that uh, all of this work be done before all so so I asked the high court to hear it in New York uh, the, the high court is called the New York State Court of Appeals and like the uh, US Supreme Court um, you don't always have a right of appeal you have to ask so in this case we asked and they agreed to hear it and so in 1982 three years after we brought the case to court uh, the court ruled it gave us everything we asked for. They nullified the results of the countywide referendum, nullified uh, all the resolutions passed by the town and county board, and said, you know, before that project, you're back to square one. You, you've got to do that review. And so eventually the review was done. It was funded by EPA. Mm-hmm. I, I remember the, uh, the amount. In those days, it was a lot. It was like $450,000. And there was a citizens advisory group, and and the the conclusion was the last thing you want to do around Lake George is add any sewers, and so um, so we we won that case, but it it changed my life, um, in that you know I had always been led to believe government was always benevolent, always had the public interest uppermost in its mind, mm-hmm. and that that these were the white hats you could trust these people. 
But here it was. I had firsthand experience that um, that uh, government was not above manufacturing a crisis and concocting or prescribing a solution that was going to benefit a few of them in office and their friends, but at everybody else's expense, and violate the rule of law in the process. So it was a stunner. Um, so I just so so I became much more interested in um, becoming better informed about the way government was supposed to work, designed to work. You know the founding documents and um, and the the thoughts and the writings of the men behind them, and uh, and and much more interested in you know, becoming better informed about what was really going on in government and, you know, being able to connect the dots uh, between what government uh, was doing, what they were allowed to do, what they were prohibited from doing, and, and what they were doing. Um, and, uh, and and so I, I just felt it was a duty or a responsibility and and that it was also... Uh, a responsibility to encourage other people to do the same thing. So I had formed uh, a group called the Tri-County Taxpayers Association uh, to serve the uh, interests uh, of the people of these two counties here. My, my uh, property here straddles the county line between Washington County and, Wa and uh, Warren County, but also the the organization would serve, you know, the interests of the people in northern Saratoga County as well. I still didn't know there was a state constitution. <laughs> I just thought, that, well, you know, there's a legislature; they pass laws, and they can't, you know. And above them is the New York is the U.S. Constitution somewhere. <laughs> I just didn't know. So, um, so we we looked around and, uh, you know, saw some things that were questionable and brought a couple lawsuits against, you know, things local, you know, around the area. Uh, but things really uh, uh, took a significant change. Uh, oh, and and it was in 1988 that I made the decision. So it, it, there was a nine-year uh, period there between... 79, yep. Between 1979, when I first brought the lawsuit... Um, and 1988, uh, uh, it was a nine-year transition between my first career and my second career. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 1988, I shut entirely shut the business down, and uh, and devoted started devoting my time uh, to full time to to this whole idea of uh, of uh, citizen vigilance um, and uh, there was a, a, a significant change uh, in 19 significant development in uh, totally unexpected in 1990 our state constitution has a provision in it that prohibits the state or its municipalities from borrowing money uh, without voter approval and um, 
And so the the uh, Mario Cuomo administration, the father of the current Andrew Cuomo, uh, they were in, uh, they were experiencing uh, tough financial times, and so they had a they were putting a, a question on the ballot asking the people to allow them to borrow $1.9 billion. Uh, they said it was for environmental programs, and they called it the Environmental Quality Bond Act. Um, but really, it was to help balance the budget. Um, but uh, And I didn't know much about that. I wasn't really following it. But again, Judy brings something to my attention. Uh, there was a piece of mail that showed up here addressed to a homeowner. And in the envelope was a, a letter from a regional environmental official, and there was a pamphlet. And the pamphlet heavily quoted Governor Cuomo. And <clears throat> uh, um, I sensed that the language in the letter and the pamphlet, uh, I mean, it was clearly language that was attempting to persuade me to vote yes on this bond act. And uh, again, one of those instinct, you know, I instinctively felt there's something wrong with that. They shouldn't be using my money to tell me how to vote. Tell me that what it's going on the ballot. Tell me what they expect to use the money for. Fine, but don't tell me how to vote, which is what they would. There was a quote in there, for instance, from the governor, which he said in this pamphlet, a vote for the Bond Act would be the ultimate selfless act. And I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> that's pretty strong. Not my idea of the ultimate selfless act. So I went to the local college, and I asked if uh, I saw a professor there, and I asked if uh, if he thought this was persuasive communication. And he said yes. And I said, would you give me an affidavit to that effect? And he said yes. Um, but I, I still didn't know, you know, what the law was on this. And so I went back to the law library, and and I was reading some court decisions. There was a decision by a Manhattan State Supreme Court justice having to do with uh, some issue of the Equal Rights Amendment um, campaign. And in his decision, he mentioned something I had never heard of, the New York State Constitution. And I said, wow, what's that? And so in front of me was this, uh, I was sitting at a table in the Warren County law library at the county courthouse. And um, in front of me was, was this, was this what they call McKinney's. It's uh, all the laws of New York State, and, and they're annotated. And uh, way up at the top shelf, to the left, the beginning of all, was something called the New York State Constitution. I figured there were like three volumes that made up, three or five volumes made up the Constitution because it was annotated. And... Um, so I went and got it, and I started reading it, and I couldn't let go. I said, holy smokes, wow, there's something above the legislature. It's the people. <laughs> it's the state legislature. No word finds its way in or out of this document except by a vote of the people. It's the people speaking. It's the people structuring the government, setting it up, and regulating it, telling it what they can and cannot do and what they must do. Wow. You know, so I'm going through this. And I'm trying to find, you know, where does the governor get the authority to tell me how to vote? And 
use my money to do so. So uh, the best I found, the only thing I could find was in both Article 7, which is the article dealing with state finances, and Article 8, the article that deals with local finances, you find similar language. And basically, you know, it says neither the money or the credit of the state or the locality, uh, local government, can be uh, uh, used uh, in aid of a private undertaking. So I thought about that, it was the, and I said, well, this question on the ballot, uh, it sure has all the trappings of a public undertaking. The government, the legislature, rule, you know, passed a resolution to to put it on the ballot. And the stuff, this letter I got is from the environmental director and the uh, and the governor. That sure has all of the trappings of a public undertaking, not a private undertaking, prohibited by the state constitution. But, you know, one of those things that just didn't set right, and I said, I'm not sure. Is this a private or, a or public undertaking? So I turned around. I remember turning around, and, and behind me was another set of books called um, New York Jurisprudence next to a set of books called American Jurisprudence. And if anybody wants to know what the law is on any subject, you go to, you know, your state jurisprudence, or, or the American jurisprudence, and um, and so I'm rummaging through the, the, that set of books, and this is what I discovered: the law is that any issue, any issue, any matter on the ballot, whether Fred, it's you running for office, or whether it's your school board looking for your approval to borrow a million dollars to add a new wing on the school, or in this case, the governor you know, in the legislature putting a question on the ballot asking for our approval to borrow $1.9 billion. Any matter, any matter on the ballot is a private matter until it passes. Only when it passes do the people give up a little bit more of their power to the government, whoever it is that wants to do something. You know, um, fill that seat, approve that bond issue, you know, whatever. So I figured, okay, that's my argument. So I was drawing up the papers uh, to sue the governor. Uh, I'd never done that before. And uh, when you do that, you have to go down to Albany uh, to sue. You got to sue in the county where they, where they, uh, their principal offices are. And um, uh, so I, uh, but I had heard that there were many more of these letters. You know, about to be shipped out from the docks of the environmental agency to homeowners around the state, and I didn't want any more of those to go out until this case was settled. And so I drew up the papers, including a restraining order. And um, as I say, you have to go down to Albany, and, and uh, there's a lot, there's a lot more state supreme court justices down there because of their population. So I went to the building where most of them hang out. And I uh, was looking at the directory, and there was this one judge who, you know, was only up a flight, and I didn't want to walk up or go up any more flights than I had to in this uh, six-story building or whatever. And uh, so I went to his, his name was Lawrence Kahn. And so I went to the door, 
knocked on it, went in, and right in front of me, uh, you know, was a desk with uh, the secretary, and her name was Elaine. And I started to approach that desk when down an inner hallway, this gentleman was walking, and it was Judge Kahn, but I didn't know him from anybody. So he said, what do you got there? I had these papers under my arm. And he said, what have you got there? And I said, well, it's a show cause order. And he said, against who? And I sort of put my head down and very sheepishly said, the governor. And he said, what's he doing now? (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, he's using my money to tell me how to vote. So our eyes met. And you could just tell he's thinking. And the next words out of his mouth were, government does that all the time, don't they? You know, and they do, you know, but they were. So I said, I don't know, but he's doing it here, you know. And he says, use that phone. Get the attorney general down here. Now my knees are really shaking. Are you kidding me, Bob? Wow. Yeah, he says, get the attorney general down here. So he laid down this number. And, of course, there were a 1,000 assistant attorney generals in New York State, right? So one of them is on the phone, and I'm talking to him. Elaine hands me the phone, and and I said, you know, I'm Bob Schultz. I'm down here in Judge Kahn's chambers. He'd like, you know, the Attorney General to come down, and uh, uh, you know, we have a uh, have a restraining order here. So he said, "What's your name?" And I told him Bob Schultz. He didn't know me from a hold the ground, you know. Uh, and he says, "Well, are you an attorney?" And I said, "No," and. He said, well, put Judge Kahn on the phone. <laughs> so I did, handed Judge Kahn the phone. I'm standing right next to him. He's quiet. He's listening. And then finally he says, okay, you got 45 minutes, 45 seconds to get down here. If you're not here in 45 seconds, I'm going to sign this. If you come down, you could try and talk me out of it. Wow. So the guy was there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, he was there in 45 seconds. So, um, so of course... We're in his uh, chambers, and of course, I give my argument. I said, "Well, here's this thing I got in the mail, and this is what it says, and you know, this is persuasive communication, and this is the issue on the ballot, and here's the case law. You know, any matter on the ballot's a private matter, and here's what the Constitution says: you can't use public money in aid of a private undertaking. So this thing is unconstitutional. It's got to be stopped. It's got to send out more of them. And and uh, so that I argue all of that, and this this assistant attorney general, he's never heard this before. This is all a whole new argument. And um, so so he argues and, you know, he just speaks, essentially. And the, and the, when he's finished, the judge says, okay, I'm with him, meaning me. And he signs the restraining order. Whoa. Wow. So the fit really hits the shan at this point. The media just picks up on this. It's a wild, you know, and um, and it's editorialized in – Newspapers all over the state. This non-attorney comes out in the mountains, <laughs> and he speaks, and he, you know, and so the the thing goes to court where the, you know, the preliminary injunction and the things argued on the merits, and I win. Um. So, uh, I begin to hear, uh, you know, the. This is editorialized all over the state. Now I'm hearing from people all over the state. 
I mean, they're calling me. They're sending me stuff. It's coming over the transom under the door, things I'd never heard of, you know, issues yeah. I'd never heard about, everything, you know. And so I uh, I said to Judy, uh, uh Look, I think we have to go around the state. Uh, I got to set up a venue where I can tell people I'm going to be there, you know, and they can come and talk to me, and I can tell them, look, you know, what you got to do is you got to get a statement of facts, you got to get your exhibits, you, gotta, you know. And so we, Judy and I, reserved the main courtroom in that winter in 42 county courthouses all over the state, and we we let the local newspaper know we were going to be there and people showed up and and I I said look learn to trust your noses if if something smells it's usually rotten and just you know get your facts together and and uh put them in chronological order and get your exhibits you know back up your statement of facts and, and we'll see where it goes well it led to one lawsuit after another and um and I wanted these people to learn you know, I wanted to help them learn, as I was learning, that it doesn't matter who the official is, what his title is, what his address is. You know, there is the law. There is the rule of law. And and it begins with the Constitution and, and, and uh, the law is pursuant thereto. And the rule of law is vile. If we lose it, you know, and, it get, and, and, and uh, you know, we get the, the rule of whim or the rule, rule of man, uh, taking over, you know, we're just doomed. I mean, you know, the ball game's over. So, um, so, uh, so I wanted, you know, them to have these people to have skin in the game, so to speak, and um, to uh, learn to understand how it works, how the court system works, and everything. So there were cases where there were many pro se. We were all pro se. I was never taking any money for any of this. I. This, ever since 1988, I decided, okay, I'm just going to, when I need money, I'll just sell a piece of my land. I am never going to earn any money. Uh, yep. I don't want my motive impugned or anything like that. Um, so uh, so we uh, developed one lawsuit after another. And I remember one case, we had 78 pro se plaintiffs show up in the court and uh, arguing a case, and we were many, winning a, a bunch of those cases. We we collapsed the uh, Tri-County Taxpayers Association, which was, you know, serving the, the interests of the people in, in three counties right here, and we it was morphed into the All-County Taxpayers Association, ACTA. Um, now, now, Bob, that was, 88 is when you said you, uh, officially initiated that this part of your career. What was the 42 county uh, uh, assembly in the courthouses, the courtrooms, the courthouses? What year was that? That was 19, the winter of 1990. Judy and I, it was winter. Wow. We, we traveled for, to all part. We would go to a, a county courthouse, hold a meeting, and return home. You and often, you know, often it was sometimes the New York State Thruway was closed after we got on it. The weather was so bad. Oh, we my God. did that, you know, night after night almost in 42 county courthouses. <clears throat> and, um, something. You know, and, and so, uh, yeah, it was 88 that, that I decided to do this full time. And 
with that initial case uh, against the governor in 1990, uh, that, that sort of, you know, brought it to the attention of a lot of people. And, and uh, you know, so, so I don't know what, we've got a little bit of time left here. Let me see if I can get this in there. This is pretty significant. This is really remarkable. Uh, it, it, I, I'll, I'll discuss it now, but I think it's going to have to be. Yeah, we'll, 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 hold, we'll hold the, let's try to do a wrap of the early part of the career as you're, as you're launching the, the second career uh, and just put, put, put a wrap around an, uh, one final event and then, then we'll, then we'll uh, do open comments and questions. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so there was, there was a series of, we just discussed one, this environmental quality bond act where the constitution requires the, the government get the voters approval. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I won that case. Right. But what that did was making, you know, the, the, the administration is is um, in financial trouble, right? Things aren't going too well for them, and and so they need money, and so but here they couldn't go to the people and persuade them to vote yes, and if you can't use persuasive communication, chances are it isn't going to pass. It's not going to pass. <laughs> they realize that, right? So the next thing they did. Uh, was the legislature passed a law to sell Attica prison to itself. The state would sell a prison the people built and paid for in 1931. Built, uh, they would, they would uh, sell it to themselves. The way they, the, so they wrote this law. It was passed by the legislature, signed by the governor. And, and the way it worked is uh, the Urban Development Corporation, a public authority set up by uh, Rockefeller to finance, help finance, uh, public housing, but here they were uh, being used to issue $283 million in bonds. The, they would purchase Attica Prison uh, from the state, state agency. Uh, so the money would go into the treasury. That helped the state, you know, that helped the governor. Uh, and what the bond issuing agency would get is, is the deed to the prison that we built and paid for. But they would lease it back to the state to the state correctional department. Um, and the lease payments would exactly equal the principal and interest on the bonds. Pretty, you know, mm-hmm. that, was, that was the law. But they weren't going to go to the voters for their approval because of the fo- first Schultz decision, where, you know, they wouldn't be able to really talk it up and, pro- and persuade people to vote yes. So that chances are the people would not approve it. So they weren't going to go to the voters. So, of course, I had them back in court. I said, wait a minute, you, Constitution requires voter approval. You're not getting the voters' approval here. So, so the, the, um, the uh, mid-level court, lower and mid-level court, dismissed it. Uh, there was a statute passed like 70 years earlier, uh, the state finance law, 123B1, which said the people of the state have a right to challenge how the state is spending its money. The, tax, the citizen taxpayers of the state have that right, except if the matter involves bonds or bond anticipation notes. So, of course, this issue involved bonds, you know, for the prison. So that's a statute, though. The Constitution says you can't do it. So, uh, the, but the court, you know, ruled that um, state finance law, you know, there's bonds here. So, sorry, you ha- you have no standing, Mr. Schultz, and the court has no jurisdiction to hear this case. 
That was the mid-level court that said that. And and so I was driving around Connecticut one day with Judy, really upset over this no standing issue. I could I could read the Constitution. I know what it says, and I know that any statute that conflicts with the state constitution is abrogated. The Constitution says so. So I didn't know what to do. So I was out with Judy <clears throat> thinking about this, and we were both raised as Lutherans. And, and uh, so we knew about Martin Luther, and uh, he had grievances against the big institution of his day, and, and he nailed 95 theses to the door of that institution called the Catholic Church. Yep. Yep. And, and uh, that was Reformation Sunday, right? So, so I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prepare. Uh, I'm going to write something up. This is so disturbing to tell me, you know, that, that I have no standing. And, and uh, so, uh, and then I'm going to not nail it, but scotch tape it. Martin Luther didn't have scotch tape. So uh, I'm going to scotch <laughs> to the door of this big, you know, big wooden doors of, of this big court. And, mm-hmm. and so I did that. I wrote it up and I was on my way over there to the, to the courthouse when I stopped at the third floor of the Capitol, which is where all the press hangs out, New York Times, AP, all, all the press. Mm-hmm. New York Post. And I told them what I was going to do. So they dropped everything, got their cameras and followed me over there and photographed me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that made it all over the state, right? Front page of the Albany paper. So now I'm uh, up at the high court, the Court of Appeals. And of course, there was this civic action that had just occurred. And, and of course, I was right. You know, the government was wrong. And but the government behaves one way if they think nobody's watching, and they and they they seem to behave another way if they think people are watching. And the one yeah. thing they don't like is bad press. I've, I've learned. So, sure enough, the the uh, court of appeals reverses the mid level court and, and and says, of course, Mr. Schultz has standing. Of course, the court has jurisdiction. You know, and they reversed uh, seventy years of precedent on that state finance law. But but. Uh, but, but what the court did, because, you know, they were uh, so short of money, they went and, sa- and, and they, they said, but, uh, Mr. Schultz, you waited a little bit too long. The genie is out of the bottle. And I knew it wasn't. The bonds yeah. were still in the hands of the managing underwriter. They hadn't been distributed. You know, maybe orders were taken for the bonds, but, you know, they, they weren't distributed. But anyway, the yeah. court said, you waited too long, you know, that's – they applied the judicial doctrine of latches, L-A-C-H-E-S. It's a legal term, and 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 uh, so uh, so it wasn't long before the uh, the state passed another statute to to borrow six billion dollars using um, the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, the New York State Authority, the Thruway Authority, and other to issue $6 billion. a lot of it was going to be used to pay operating costs, like the salaries of the toll takers in the subways. Terrible thing you borrow money for. And, and, mm-hmm. um, but they weren't going to get voter approval. And this time I was right in there. I didn't wait. There was no latches defense or anything like that. And they hired Arthur Lyman. Arthur Lyman was the uh, attorney asking the questions from the bench during the congressional Iran-Contra hearings. He was the, the government's attorney up there, and, and wow. they hired him to go against me on this $6 wow. billion dollar bond act. And I was mm-hmm. arguing, you know, hey, the voters have to approve this. And, and uh, so what he was arguing was, oh, geez, the bonds say it's not the debt of the state. 
and the uh, 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 the offering memorandum used to induce people to buy the bonds. It says, you know, it's not the debt of the state. And of course, I'm arguing, well, whose debt is it? You know, it's not the debt of the state. And 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 I said, uh, and, he, and he was arguing. He said, well, the legislature may decide some year not to appropriate the money, you know, to pay the bonds. I said, that'll never happen. You know, it's never happened in our history. The state would never allow that to happen. It would affect the, the cost of borrowing for every school district, everybody in the state. That'll never mm-hmm. happen. And besides, I argued, over here in the state constitution, it plainly says the state com- if, if the legislature does not appropriate money to pay the bonds, to pay any bonds of, of, of the state or its municipalities, the controller shall impound the next monies coming into the treasury and use those funds to pay the state's debt before he writes a check to anybody else, okay? So it was pretty rock solid, I thought, right? So, but in the end, this taught me, this was it, you know, this just showed me just how bad, how politicized the judiciary is. The chief judge wrote the opinion, and she said, well, if the legislature appropriates money, uh, for these bonds, they will be gifts, and the legislature, not debt service, will call them gifts, and yeah. the legislature is free to gift money to anybody it wants to. Holy jeez, that's how the state won that case. Remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Wow. Today we have corporate welfare all over the state, something prohibited by the state, and all this borrowed money is behind it, and because of that decision. It's no, it's not the debt of the state. It's just gifts. It's the legislature gifting the taxpayers money. You know, so so that 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 just you know, uh, I was so upset over that that I uh, turned my attention uh, to other matters and started looking more closely at federal issues and set up We the People Foundation um, in 1997. Uh, I tried. There was a effort. We were leading uh, to try and get a, a, a – it was a big deal. It, it, it was a question coming on the ballot. In New York State, uh, every 20 years, there has to be a question on the ballot. By the way, it's coming up again this year. Um, this was 1997, so it's been 20 years. Um, uh, the question on the ballot is, shall there be a convention to revise the state constitution and amend the same? And so I got you know involved in that, and uh, but I was – Boy, that just opened my eyes. So, Bob, we are we're we're going to close out the first chapter of this uh, podcast uh, right at the eve of the creation of We the People Foundation. Um, yes. And Betty Smith was a member of that of that precursor group or that predecessor group, correct? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yes, Betty, are you on? Yeah. Yeah. Am I uh, am I um, unmuted? Yes, you're yeah. unmuted, Betty. Yeah, yes, I was. Okay, and uh, holy cow, Bob, man. <laughs> so well, it's been quite and, a... Uh, we're not going to get into the details of We the People, but let's just lay the groundwork uh, because the next episode, we're going to launch it, the creation of We the People Foundation, and that's 1997, you said, right? That's right. Uh, that's when it was incorporated, right, here in New York. You know, so for, so for for nearly forty years, you know, uh, I've been campaigning to restore the individual right to petition the government for redress of grievances. It's it's that fundamental 
unalienable right of the people so brilliantly and magnificently positioned and guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. Uh, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise of thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and, and these are the last ten words of the first of the First Amendment, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Ten, ten venerable words entitled to the highest respect, not, not to be violated or, or made common. You know, ten hallowed words consecrated and, and dedicated to the greatest or the grandest of, of the rights of the people you know, government based upon the consent of the people. You know, ten, ten sacred words I refer to as, as the Constitution's accountability clause. Because those now, words... Bob, you know, Bob uh, the launching of the space shuttle that blew up, you made a, mention, you made a, a note that there was something about that day. Was it actually that day... That uh, that news came across the transom of of the of, of the of the story that that Judy brought before you of, of that that sewer system was that the day? No, 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 no. That um, I, that day was the day that uh, the head of this company that I. Uh, had signed on uh, for a yep. three-year stint as uh, their vice president of project development, that yep. that he uh, uh, put out a press release oh, about, totally, a con- uh, yep. about a contract okay. yep. that didn't happen. And it was yep. just to spike, you know, the value of the stock. And okay. when I got back, I heard about it. And, uh, of course, I was upset and said I didn't want any part of this, and I, I resigned and left. I just resi- I didn't even resign. I just left. But um, that that helped shift your focus to m- uh, matters more close at home in in this in this new area that was emerging before you, right? Well, uh, it, it was uh, I w- I was in the um, yeah that that was probably uh, I'm trying to think it was probably '86 or so that that '86 yeah eighty January of '86 yeah. yeah. So it was two years later that I um, I had already won the sewer case in '82. Yep. Oh, '82. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I was developing the Tri County Taxpayers Association, but okay. it was in '88 that I, uh, you know, just put an end to the first career, shut my office got down, got out of okay. that, and got into this full time. Got it. But but that was that was a moment that kind of moved you closer. To ending the first part of your career is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, that that uh, you yes. just you just you just left and and then uh, as a result, I mean, you still had your project group, but you left that 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 part of your job there for that company and. Yeah, and so it, I left. Yeah. I was uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. And and um, I was traveling back and forth on the weekends. I didn't want to disrupt my family life here and the kids in school and so forth. So sure. I was traveling back and forth and uh, uh, 
so in 86, um, I left there and came back here. And, uh, and in 88, left that my first career totally behind, shut that down, yeah. and, and got into this full-time. Okay. Wow. Okay, we closed out two full hours of this uh, episode one we're going to call this, and and I'm so sorry for the faux pas of, of Carol versus Judy, Bob, <laughs> at the beginning of the call. Uh, yeah, well, it's been again, a while. Behind the scenes, Judy has been uh, uh, just a, a, a an angel of a force uh, for good, uh, for organization, for discipline, and, and keeping you on track behind this whole thing. So I just wanted to say uh, thank you. Uh, and, Bob, we're going to open it up right now for comments and questions. Betty Smith is on the call. Anybody else, a comment or question? We're doing this, everyone, uh, to preserve uh, the story of We the People uh, as it's been walked through the footsteps of Bob Schultz. And we started from the very, very beginning of his career in, 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 his, in his private public life uh, working in private industry. And now when he comes back on the call, maybe a month from now or three weeks from now, whatever it is, we're going to do episode two. So anybody out there, just a comment or question. Betty, you want to say something? Well, it was through Bob that I learned a lot of her direction that I did for uh, community act- activity in my community, uh, such as uh, the environmental review and all those things. And... Um, I I really respect all of Bob's work. He's worked hard at it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've learned, though, that individuals in small groups uh, cannot prevail. It's very hard for them to prevail. When you get too close to the – I found when I got too close to the heart of the channels of money and power, you lose. You lose in the courts. You you cannot – cannot rely, of course, on the electoral process, and you cannot rely on the judiciary. It's really up to us. It's up to the people. Um, but individuals in small groups have a hard time, and so organization is the key. And uh, uh, But it's a challenge, as you know. It's a, it's a huge challenge. And, um, you know, it's all about the right to petition the government, the full meaning of that, and there's a lot at stake. I mean, this has been the right to petition is is uh, it's it's my life. It has been yep. now for almost 40 years, and uh, I know the power, the history, the meaning, the significance, and the power of those words. And uh, there's a lot at stake, though, for both sides. Obviously, the government. Uh, and I can give you as we will go through this. I'll give sure. you all the of just how far we're going to go blow by blow with so much detail uh folks so uh i mean this has been just the the saga of my involvement betty's involvement alone and we 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 could go on for hours on this call just from personal experience working with you bob and um uh, yeah they, they how far government will go uh to in the interest of you know securing their their entrenched power at stake there's a lot at stake for us. The ability to hold government accountable is a lot at stake for them. They they don't want to be held accountable. 
and um, and just how far they will go. I have lots of examples showing just how far they will go, you know, to to protect their power. Um, so it'll be interesting as we go along here. Uh-huh. You know, out of the, out of this will come. Uh, I'm in the thick of this now. This this whole issue, the right to petition, mm-hmm. my uh, particularly my struggle uh, at the federal level that began uh, in 1999 with Joe Bannister. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> And Bob, we're not going to go. We're not going to go into the details tonight because we can't. But uh, no, 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 I'm not going to. But, but, on it. Yep. Uh, no, I don't want to. But but what's at stake here? I mean, this is this is this is an epic struggle that I've been involved in, and for all these yep. years. But it is coming to a head, and uh, we'll get into those details. Not now. Yeah. Um, out of this, you know, what may come. A shift. What, what's needed is a shift in in the ultimate power in our society from the government to the people where it was meant to reside in the first place, and that's yep. what's at stake here. So, be, I'm happy to share uh, all of this with you. And uh, Bob, uh, when I said in the beginning, I'm encouraging this gentleman, Alan Stevo, to get up to speed with your work with the history. I'm going to ask him to go through. If he's not listening on the call right now, I'm going to ask him to go through this archive of this night's call because uh, he's extremely interested in this whole process and he's a very good writer. And uh, another person that I, we have encouraged or dropped a line to is is the uh, filmmaker, uh, James Yeager, who's done so many documentaries. And we've encouraged him to, and I, I told you about, you know, he's been on our call many times. Uh, someone needs to film and document your story in the video in in film a format as well. So, but uh, hopefully this this uh, process that we're going through right now, these kind of loosely cut episodes of podcasts, uh, could contribute to doing that. And and also you said that you you may have to go back and and you know take some time and write things, uh, you know, hang, hang an outline. Uh, sort of bullet points of, of the general things in, in written form and maybe release that as a book at some point. Yeah, I took a shot at a preface based on our last conversation, Fred. Oh, you did? Oh, good. Yeah. Well, man, uh, for the next uh, time you're on our call, we're, let's use that preface in, in the newsletter then, okay? Yeah, <laughs> I've never done anything like this before. But, um, but no, if, if you want to read that preface right now, if if it is short, why don't we just close the call tonight with that preface? Well, we can do it. Uh, or you want to do it the next time? Yeah, we'll do it next time. Okay. All that's right. Good. Yeah, it's one All page. Right. One page. Okay. That, that's that's a start. It's just a start. We we should do that. Anybody else on the call? Uh, uh, make a comment or question toward Bob before we close it off. Episode one of of, got of this quick incredible story. Go ahead. Was working with refuse material companies, and then I start thinking of mafia. They're supposed to be involved so much in the garbage handling. Did you have any? Did that? Yeah. Come well, up? yeah. As I say, I put it. I put it kindly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> those those were the vested interest. You know, in the status quo. 
Uh, so it you know you got Italians in New York, you got Armenians in California, you got I think the Dutch up your way, Fred. Um, yeah. You know, so <laughs> yeah, it was quite a as I say, discontent breeds change, but change breeds discontent. Okay, so, and then I was wondering what the name of that Ecuador coastal town was. Did you say the bananas? Oh, uh, Guayaquil, Ecuador. Yeah, it's quite a place. Um, we had to anchor the ship in the Guayaquil River, and we had to keep the engine, the screws, you know, the propellers turning because the current was always so strong. Just to stay in place, <laughs> you had to run the, the propellers. And it was an interesting, you know, uh, all these guys would uh, carry these big stalks of bananas. They're, it's hot down there, so they just got these shorts on and, they're big, burly guys. They're strong guys because this is what they do for a living. And they walk up this wooden plank, and and um, and they bring this these stalks of bananas on, aboard, and um, and you know they're putting these uh, holes, and and uh, cold air is run over them uh, to keep them at a certain temperature. Uh, I remember sticking a thermometer in the in the uh, bananas a number of times just to make sure they. I think the temperature they had to be kept at was 59 degrees. Any any colder than that, they would never ripen in the supermarket. Or any warmer than that, they ripen too quickly. You know, so yeah. uh, strong, mm. strong uh, cold air blown over those bananas in the cargo holds, and and there are a lot of tarantulas that that come aboard with these stalks. <laughs> Well, they're caught. Uh, they're caught on this screen. You know, you go down there and you look at the bananas, and you look through a screen, and there are all these tarantulas stuck because of the force of the of the cold air. They're stuck oh, in the screen. That is, that's an image I can never forget. Oh, well. Why are you? Rose, Lear's on. Rose. What hey, do you know? I just wanted to say hi. Is that Rose? Yes. Well, hi. How are you and Bill doing? Well, we're doing well. Yeah? For old, yeah, for old people. Yeah, that's <laughs> why I always tell people. I'm doing okay for an older guy. You know? <laughs> yeah, Bob, Bob, you're doing way better than we are. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. You know the government. I'm I'm tangling with them. Boy, I, I've sued the United States. It's a long story. It's it's all related to everything we're talking about. They don't like opposition. You know, from any quarter. Uh, they no, will go. They will go to they, every everyone. Bob needs our Bob needs our prayers. And uh, Rose Lear is a prayer warrior. She's she's amazing. Rose, we need to get a a prayer chain going for Bob. Okay. Well, we'll do that. Bob, I I know what you're going through. You that, that. Year, that year that that we went through this, when Bill was gone, I had FBI agents parked out front of the house. Yeah. They they tailed me everywhere I went. Yeah, well, talk, about, talk about a waste of government money. <laughs> they followed me to the store. They followed me to my mother's. That was the only place I went. Sure they weren't just admirers? <laughs> no, because my my poor neighbor next door, she was a young single mother. She saw these guys 
in parked cars on our street, and so she called the police because she had young children. And they said, oh, ma'am, don't worry about them. They're federal agents watching your neighbor. Oh, gee. She called me me up one day, Bob, and she said, come outside and talk to me. I can't talk to you on the phone. And told me what was going on. Well, yeah, they they don't like opposition. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the threads of this story that will eventually get written is just how far they'll go, you know, to cheat to win. Um, It's not a pretty story. No, it's it's very scary. Yeah, well, we've got to institutionalize citizen vigilance and and make this, make our work, you know, institution as, as executive and legislative and judicial branches. Anyway. Yeah, but first, first you have to be able to unbrainwash the people around you. Well, it's I don't know. Yeah, it's there's a lot of that, of course, but there's also fear. I think the greatest obstacle is people fear the government. Um, and and you couple that with, you know, the total lack of civic education. We have a law here in New York State passed in the 40s, 1940s, uh, Section 801 of our state education law. And so help me God, this is what it says. All teachers of the state will teach all children of the state in public and private schools from grade 8 on, I'm, I'm quoting, the history, the meaning, the significance, and the effect of every provision of our state and federal constitutions and the Declaration of Independence. They've never done it. Judy and I graduated in 57. We weren't taught. They're still not teaching. You know, by the time each rising generation, in other words, just looking at that law, each, by the time each rising generation graduates high school, they are to know. First of all, there's a state constitution. Most people don't even know that. But they're, not, they're to know what's in there, how it got in there, and, and, and why it's there, and the power that they have and the power of it. Uh, but it's not taught. And, and and so people are not well positioned to connect the dots, you know, between what government is doing at the local level, the state level, the federal level, what the Constitution requires. We have war powers. You know, Bob, I remember when we took that plane ride from Grand Rapids over to Minnesota, and on the plane... You were questioning me about that I was taught in grade school about our Michigan Constitution. I could not believe you didn't know every state has their own constitution. Oh, I knew that. But after, after, well, you knew it then, but you were telling me, that you didn't learn it in school. Oh, no, I didn't know until I was 51 years old that we had a state constitution in New York. And I learned it in grade school, but I went to a private Catholic school. Yeah, well, I found out out 
that the public school kids weren't learning the same thing I was taught in grade school. Right. Public education has all but taken over private education. And so public education means government schools. And the government has, I don't think they sat around and made a constructive, you know, decision, but, but they've certainly, you know, determined one way or another that it wasn't in their best interest to teach the children that they had the ultimate power in our society and, and uh, give them all the underlying principles, the principles underlying our system of governance, our constitution, our charters of freedom. Um, it's just not taught. I mean, they get, you know, they, not, they, they mention there's a, a, constant, a federal constitution um, and that, you know, laws start out, you know, in committee resolutions, you know. Um, get some of those basic highlights, but uh, but the underlying fundamental principles, no, they're not taught. I, I learned high school government, what they teach the kids or what they taught them when I was in high school, I already knew because I was taught how government worked in grade school. Well, you were... Among the the few, public education, you know, there was a time when there was no public education, and the, the, the education was basically, you know, all of the religious denominations, you know, Methodists, Lutherans, you know, whatever. They had their Catholics. They had their, they had their schools. And right. uh, those people were so much better, you know, educated, um, you know, didn't Lincoln come out of one of those little schools? <laughs> you know, um, and and uh, I don't know. Public education uh, serves teachers' unions. I, they serve. This, this, uh, they got disconnected priorities. Well, I I feel terrible because the children today are learning <clears throat> nothing. Other than how to have sex, they've got plenty of sex education. They are not learning any basic skills. They are not learning anything about civics or government. And with Common Core, we're federalizing education um, through these uh, these these two uh, multi-state. Uh, organizations that uh, the states have to belong to uh, if they accept that federal money, which most of them did. So, uh, but it's uh, but it's these assessment consortiums that they have to belong to. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're so it's Common Core. Uh, it, it it's uh, they're federalizing education. Well, you know, I can one, tell you if. If they manage to get Betsy DeVos approved for the education department, she will take on the teachers' union. Well, well that's good. That's good. She's done it here. She's done it here in Michigan. Maybe. Uh... We'll see her dismantle the education department. Well, that's that's 
I, I, I guarantee you that's her goal. Well, that, that would be good. That I think we're going really to see a lot of changes like that going forward, hopefully. Hey, Bob, I know you're tired. It sounds like it's uh, time to wind the call down, everyone. Uh, episode one is in the camp. Thank you, Rose, for coming on. CD, uh, everyone, uh, next time Bob comes on, uh, bring more people on the call because uh, we, we want to spread these episodes and we want to uh, add written outlines, and Bob's going to provide a preface uh, for, for the next time. But, Bob, could you make one of these calls? Uh, say four weeks from now, four or five weeks from now, or is, yeah, that, just, is that too long? Yeah, anytime. Just let me know. Give me a heads up. Yeah, because I, I, I think it's important. And not too much time. Uh, we don't want another six months to go by. Is what I'm saying. I mean, oh, no, uh, if it's three weeks, uh, you know, maybe that's too short. But at least four, not more than a month, I would say. Is that okay? Two or three weeks is fine. The two to three. Okay. Sounds good. Let, let, let's call it uh, three weeks from today. We'll try to do a wrap in three weeks uh, in early February, but but the time of the Super Bowl, something like that, okay? Yeah. So, all right. Uh, all right. So that would be around the uh, 2nd of February. 2nd of February, because uh, my birthday is the 5th, Super Bowl Sunday is 5, 4, 3. Yeah, that's 2nd of February. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay. Betty, thank you for coming on. Uh, everyone on the call, please spread and share this. Uh, and the next time Bob comes on, this is going to be really kind of hot and heavy going forward, blow by blow, case by case, uh, uh, situation by situation. But uh, we're going to try to carve it out in about four or five of these podcasts uh, before it's all over. Bob, How's Jim Condit? So uh, Jim Condit's still around. We had him on a, a few months ago. Okay. All right, well, good to Jim be Palma, with you. Jim Palmasano, Jim, Palma, Jim Condit, a whole bunch of people. Uh, Dee Dee keeps the master list of everyone we've had, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot He's of people on right now. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> but, uh, All right, guys, anyway. we'll with you. Yeah, I uh, think, uh, Bob, what, what would be nice to do is at the 10th anniversary of this call in May, Let's have this all wrapped up. How about that? That's an objective. Well, that'd be great, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so I'll leave you guys with this thought. Okay, go ahead. One final uh, thought. The, the most valuable, I find, and the most valuable antiques are dear old friends. Here, <laughs> <So. Yep. laughs> here. Cheers to that, Sounds Bob. Sounds good, Bob. All right. All right. Good night, everyone. Thanks again, night. Bob. Thanks, Betty. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Stevie. See you guys next next week. God bless. Thank you, Fred. Bye. 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 Bye, Betty. (laughs) A-U-N, American Underground Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.